It was 25,000 Singapore dollars. That was my debt to my university. That was the wake up point. I mean, we're called the woke salary man, not because we're trying to tag on to the social justice wokeness in the West or whatever. It's just literally for me, it's, I woke up to the fact that I'm an adult now. I have real expenses. I have real life problems, real adult problems, which are money related that I need to sort out. So it was a wake up point when I looked at my bank account. And I, wow, my net worth is minus $25,000. Like it's, it's a great Louis C.K. joke. He says, like when you have that kind of debt, right, you're not even broke. Like I need $25,000 to be officially broke and have zero dollars. I have less than zero. And, and one of my favorite jokes on Louis C.K. He said that, uh, if something's free, I can't afford it. <laughs> because I have negative money. I thought that was really funny and it related very hard to me. So that was my wake up point, really. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 40 of the So This Is My Why podcast. I'm your host and producer, Lingya. And today is the very first time we have two guests on at the same time. They're none other than Rumi and Wei Cheng, the copywriter and illustrator behind The Woke Salaryman, a viral page that was set up with the intention of helping people make better financial and life choices through education. They started in 2019, beginning with a viral post that Rumi wrote about how he saved $100,000 before he turned 30. And the work salary has since evolved and has become a place where they share personal stories, tips, and advice on personal finance through a series of simple-to-understand comics. Everything from the real reason you're being underpaid and unfair workplace practices to what you should consider before changing careers in your 30s. This was a wide-ranging conversation and we covered everything from how they first met in Polly to beginning the work salary men, why they do sponsored posts, the secret to virality, and what they think of Clubhouse and its potential for them. So are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. I started to come to Singapore to study when I was 7 years old. So what would happen is that I would wake up like 4-5 a.m. in the morning, my mom would shake me awake and then push me on a school bus. The bus would go through customs, I would go down, chop my passport and then I would go to school and then after that I would do the same thing on the way back. So I would come home typically 8-9 p.m. I didn't move to Singapore until I was like 18 years old in Polytechnic. Then I lived with my aunt for a while, then I eventually rented my own place. So I think a lot of my peers don't really care or really go and highlight the fact that I'm Malaysia, except when I speak Chinese. Because my When I speak Chinese, it's very clear that I speak with a very strong accent. But apart from that, it was more like shared experiences that I did not have. For example, like when we were 18, a lot of my friends in Singapore, the guy friends all went to national service. I was actually called up to do national service in Malaysia, but I just keep deferring and postponing it because of my studies and then eventually they abolished it. So I didn't end up serving. But I've heard enough stories from my guy friends in Singapore that I probably, if I had to, right, I could fake that I did NS. I have stories, right? And was animation something that was already very prominent for you when you were young? Yeah, it was. So I always loved watching cartoons. I always loved to draw. But it was really in secondary school that I had a good friend of mine. His name is Ihua. And we always draw together. So things like our social studies textbook, for example, we would vandalize the pictures of real-life leaders of Singapore and Malaysia. And we would draw things on top. And that was really fun for me, like the idea of using drawing to tell stories, even though there was already a, a story underneath. Like, for example, if Nikonyu was doing this, there was one picture that we did. And then we just drew like 
a walk and then some spatulas. It's a funny thing, you know. So that made it very clear to me that like filling the blanks, are, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like recontextualizing things with drawing, the power of drawing and tell stories. That was really very prominent then. I never had a good business sense. Even now, like that's one of my weaknesses. But I remember there was a classmate that I had. He realized that me and my friend Yimha were good at drawing. So what he wanted to do was to draw pornographic pictures. So he said, I will draw the disgusting bits. You just draw the face and make it look nice. There was a potential business partner waiting for me, but I, I, I just said no to that. So that didn't end up happening. Yeah. <laughs> I made it big. Yeah. yeah. Very different trajectory. And Rumi, yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand that the 1997 economic crisis had quite a large impact on your family life growing up. Could you share a bit about that? I think that was the peak of my dad's career. After that, he never really earned as much as he did again. So my dad, I think the most he earned at a job was 4,000 bucks, which sounds a lot for his time. But I do know of parents who earn like 10, 20K in 997, which is quite crazy. Lah. But I think the impact that that brought upon my family was that my family went through large financial stress because my family actually bought an investment condo. It was way out of their means based on like a conservative uh, investing, right? Like they should not even have bought the condo because my dad, the highest he earned was 4K. Then my mom, the max she earned was 2005 after working for 30 years. La. So it's, it's quite insane, la, right? And my dad got retrenched and a few months later, my mom also got retrenched. So we actually went for like a long period of time without a job. And actually that was when the family started to scale back on things we used to enjoy. La. My dad had to sell his car. I mean, the toys I wanted, I could not have. That was probably my first real encounter with money on a larger sense of how it can affect one's lifestyle. You're just yeah. unhappy at the fact that hey, why I have less toys. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. you understood like why gratification was yeah. put aside for now. Yeah, 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 yeah. And while this was going on, I understand you were also blogging and writing like, gossipy articles oh. in school. So that was 97. I was only in primary school. Uh. I only started blogging in like 2002 when I entered secondary school. In a way, it's like a power play. Like, I felt like, you know, by being the school's publisher on like gossip and like stupid observations, you kind of attract attention in, in that way. You wielded social power. Yeah, yeah, I wielded social power. Like, hey, everything blow on me. <laughs> so that was my first foray into writing and realizing that, hey, actually, I'm, I, I can be quite an entertaining writer. So you had a blog that people would read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So at this heyday, what was your traffic like? Not that high, maybe like two to three hundred page views for a small school blog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not bad. Where you, it's like a very niche publication. So it's like the Jurong East Times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jurong East Times yeah, got three hundred yeah. clicks, but this is like the Commonwealth Secondary school, school Times, and then it had three hundred clicks, which I felt like yeah, it was quite decent. Maybe it's like a ten percent penetration rate. And at what point do you decide that you wanted to make your career? Wow, actually, back in two thousand and six. There are all these like prominent bloggers like you know Xiaxie in Singapore. Like there was the whole gush cloud nothing kind of people. But then I actually felt like it's too late for me to to maintain a blog because these people already came before already. So I should just fall in line because I failed like, I didn't make it like. My content just wasn't good enough. So this was the era of bloggers, right? Yeah. Like, it was like before influencers yeah, before were influencers. called influencers and then yeah. you got this like quick social media stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was like blogspot.com, exactly.com, exactly. Tumblr, you know. Yeah, so I got pretty discouraged like, and I figured like, hey, I should just be a, a journalist instead. Like, don't, don't write about this blog, write for a publication, just write about the news, don't write about like opinions and stuff. Because I felt like back then, journalism was a more viable career than creating content or blogging. Like. So you end up uh, going to the Polytechnic and Wei Chun followed you soon after. So how do you two meet? So Wei Chun was this funny guy from the other cohort. I just remember during year three, we had internships and there was this option to do internships at the school. 
Because we were in the same year, but yeah, different it's, cohorts. It's, it's, it's hard to explain. So it's like A and B, then we will study the set A module, then they will take the set B module. Yeah, then we switch. And then half the next half of the year, we do will internship. switch. Yeah, yeah, do so internship. A will do B, B will do A. So he's in A and B. Yeah. But we met because I was working on my internship, which was an internal internship. So I was working for the school newspaper, yeah. the school publications, and then he was writing for the school publication. Yeah. I had a few friends who retained, uh, so when I visited them, he, like, Weichun was there. And I remember, like, the first time I met Weichun, Weichun was doing, like, some handstand. I was doing handstand in the office, yeah. I don't know why. Yeah, I was like, oh, actually, yeah, this guy quite cool. We can do a handstand. <laughs> I, I think that's the first impression I had of him. And those were simpler days, uh. I yeah. just do handstand. I just people, do handstand. People found it cool. Yeah. Right? I wish it was so easy, though. Although I think I, I was probably the only weirdo thinking it was cool. Right? No, no, go others. Go you others. think so? There yeah. a whole bunch of weirdos that were impressed that I could do it. Oh, well done. Uh, actually, I used that tactic many times to great success. Yes. Yeah. Did you only work with, like, guys? Yeah, I work with guys, yeah, they work with girls. Oh, I intended it to work with girls, but it never quite worked. <laughs> I see, I see. I checked out a whole bunch of weird dudes. <laughs> I see. Okay, so you're watching this, don't do handstand if you want yeah, to yeah. try girls. But who knows, maybe it'll change, maybe there'll be a TikTok thing like hashtag handstand and then all the handstand dudes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, was, I was doing it too early. Yeah, here all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys were doing yeah. stupid stuff together as so well, I heard. Oh, extremely stupid. Like, my first memory of Rimei actually was that I no reason, I don't understand who does this and why we did it. 10 p.m. at night, and he said, Hey, you want to go and throw plastic bags and water down the. Because our school was on the 10th floor of this tall building. So, hey, you want to go and get a plastic bag filled with water and throw it down? And I'm like, Okay, sure. Like, I didn't know this was a thing, but let's do it. And it was very fun. Uh. Run to the tap, fill it just with plastic bags, yeah, fill it yeah. with water, yeah. tie it up, then we we'll throw it down. And it will hit these storage tanks at the bottom and it will go boom, 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 boom. It was them loud. And it was very fun. Uh. I don't even know why it's fun. Uh, probably. I remember the first time I did cares, it. Uh. The first time I did it was in primary school. Oh. And I was marveling at like how something so soft can cause such great like, damage. Impact, right, 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 right. And make such a big sound. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. But, yeah. Somehow I decided to get yeah. people to do it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Discover yeah. the joy. So that was my first memory of kind of hanging out with him. Yeah. And you guys didn't I, get in trouble with that. No, la, I think it's okay. Uh, <laughs> I think smoking is worse. Yeah, yeah, smoking is worse. And I think, Wei-Chung, you wanted to make films about Singapore when you were in Poly. Definitely in uni, because in Poly, I was really into becoming an animator and working in Japan to make animes. I was really deep into anime at the point in time. Mm. So, the, so the, the, the phase to really want to do Singapore animation came later when I started then reading up about the more nuanced animation history. So not just anime, not, not just what was popular at the time. I read a lot about animation history. And I wanted to express locality through film. So I, I realized there was not a lot of films about Singapore that really showed what Singapore was like. And I wanted to do that. Like Actually, I did it as, as my master's. My master's thesis actually for animation was that I wrote about expressing Singapore national identity through animation. And, and doing this as a non-Singaporean, because I'm Malaysian, you know. So it was kind of like an outsider, insider kind of thing. I've been here a long time. I'm technically an outsider. What is it like and how would I capture the real essence of what Singapore is like in a film? That was my dream for quite a while. I get the feeling that you are not afraid to just call out what you see. Nowadays, now that I'm trying to pay back a mortgage and then I'm thinking about maybe marriage and children and things like that. You can't say maybe. Well, it is maybe. Like, All right. My fiancé will get upset at me for saying that we talked about it. I would need to settle my finances first, which kind of is why... I got interested in finance, started asking him about it because I realized very early on that in Singapore, it's not a great place to do uh, art about Singapore because if you want to be truthful, you want to get some of the 
the real juicy stuff, the real, the good and the bad, the yin and the yang, which is very important for any genuine and honest expression, you will not be able to get government funding. And there's not a lot of other funding sources in Singapore to do that. So I am not born into great wealth and privilege. My family would not have been able to support me just experimenting and expressing myself through animation. So I need to first find my own footing and make my own privilege so that I can then dedicate the next few years of my life to like take a long sabbatical and then just make stories about Singapore or the truth that I'm living in without anyone supporting me and possibly censoring me. I imagine Weijun, when you graduated that you were not quite of the mindset of I will never let anything sully my art. Would that be right yeah, yeah. to say? Yeah, I was, I was super staunch because I wanted to be an animation for a very long time. Actually, when I was in poly, I was just dreaming about doing none of this mass comp stuff and just doing animation. And I remember telling myself at one point, so naive, you know, like looking back. So two statements that I, I kind of told myself, I told myself, if I could earn $3,000 a month, I would do whatever the job is animation-wise. If I could just earn $3,000 a month, just doing animation, I would do it. Do whatever it is, I'll do it. Which is very naive, first off, because animators that work in anime, for example, a lot of them don't earn that much in the first place. And to earn less than $3,000 in Singapore can be quite difficult, especially if you want to maybe start a family or have a mortgage going on. And then the other thing I told myself was that if I ever lost my passion for animation, I might as well kill myself because that was my only identity, or I defined it as such. A very naive thing to say, because gradually as I went to uni and I found out that there are other ways to tell stories that were a bit more efficient, because animation requires a lot of manual labor to create. Even nowadays, with a lot of technological advancements that make it very easy for singular people to make their own animation, it still requires a great deal of work. And for example, we do comics now. Comics is the easier way to do it. I mean, it still requires a great deal of effort, but if I want to do, and I'm working on some stories right now on my own that I haven't really delved into properly, but I will do it primarily in comics. And when it takes off, then I'll get investors and then I'll get somebody to animate it. I won't be doing it myself individually. Not efficient now. You said earlier that animators don't even earn 3000 but when you graduated, you had earned 20000 in debt. So how do you think about dealing with that debt? It was 25000 Singapore dollars. That was my debt to my university. That was the wake-up point. I mean, we're called the woke salary, man. Not because we're trying to tack on to the social justice wokeness in the West or whatever. It's just literally for me, it's, I woke up to the fact that I'm an adult now. I have real expenses. I have real life problems, real adult problems, which are money-related that I need to sort out. So it was a wake-up point when I looked at my bank account. And I, wow, my net worth is minus $25,000. Like, it's, it's a great Louis C.K. joke. He says, like, when you have that kind of debt, right, you're not even broke. Like, I need $25,000 to be officially broke and have zero dollars. I have less than zero. And, and one of my favorite jokes on Louis C.K., he said that, uh, if something's free, I can't afford it. <laughs> because I have negative money. I thought that was really funny and it related very hard to me. So that was my wake-up point, really. And what I did, first off, was to ask this guy what to do because he, I think, woke up earlier than me. I knew that this guy knew a lot about stocks and investments. So I just kept asking him this is before we started with him. Just yeah, say, what yeah. do I invest? How to invest? Which brokerage? How do I even sign up? For? I think it was even before we joined Mothership. Right? Yeah, 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 before, yeah. I started asking. Yeah. I think you also read Rich Dad Poor Dad, which had an impact on you too. Yes, Rich Dad Poor Dad was great because it was so easy to understand. The biggest takeaway from me from Rich Dad Poor Dad is just mindset is extremely important because that is the premise of it. That he has a rich dad and a poor dad. And if you read that, actually, the poor dad is a very, very intelligent 
very well-studied, well-read person who is very smart. Intellectual, right? Super intellectual. Academy. So I related to them because I just had a master's degree, but I'm broke. So that one hit very hard. And I think a lot of people in my generation. So in university, they never talk about the finances. They just talk about the art itself. Oh, they did. There was one module called professional practice. I mean, they are, they are trying. Lah. I, I can't blame them for not teaching me this stuff. Also, like, People like to blame universities, but I also think it's about hunger. And if you're hungry, you will just go and find these things. But I wish somebody really sat us down and said, do you understand that as artists, right, the odds are that you are not going to be doing this when you graduate. And, and I think for my batch, it seems to be the case where I think more than half of the graduating batch is not doing art or animation related stuff, which is a bit bleak, but I mean, they're all right. Uh, they still got a university degree. They tried, uh, but I don't think they really got to the nub of it. And if I could, I would go back there and teach people. And so the, the class that I was talking about, they taught you stuff like how to write contracts, how to invoice, how to look out for things here and there when it comes to uh, freelancing and things like that. But I would just have a wake-up module, uh, like just to, every week, I will come in and I'll destroy your fantasies about art <laughs> by forcing you to look at the bleak future that statistically awaits you. The greatest thing I took away from university was a way of being critical that everything you say can and will be subjected to arguments. And in that argument, in that crosswords, when stone meets stone, metal meets metal, yeah. everybody gets sharper. I just hate this recent thing. It seems to be university where people demand safe spaces. Yeah. Safe spaces are important to not have people be harassed. But your ideas and your ideas are absolutely and should never be sacred enough that I can't argue with you about yeah, yeah. your ideas in an objective manner. A lot of what university, especially in the more liberal places. Yeah, I just feel like the culture tends to be a, a lot more liberal these days. Yes. I, I feel like if yes. you go and talk about practical stuff, people will rage at you like, because... That's why I'm not doing yeah, it. Yeah, like, yeah. Because there's a liability that I might be cancelled. I'll be yeah. cancelled. <laughs> and, and also, like, there's the argument, you know, are the people in uni, are they, like, qualified to talk about the more practical things? I mean, not... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe animation, they are... Maybe they're industry professionals, yeah. right? But I mean, in other fields, they are, like, yeah. academics that have never worked in the... Yes, yes, that, that's before. very true, yes. Then you want yes. to talk about money. Actually, yes, you know, yes. they, I mean, they were, most, more likely they talk about ethics and yeah, yeah. There, there definitely is a coral reef of academia I believe not in all industries I'm yeah. talking from my experience where people just do stay in the coral reefs all the time so yeah. it's hard for them to even understand that there might be this thing outside yeah. so, so maybe let's not call it teach we don't teach but we maybe have professionals come in and tell stories about how messed up the industry can be yeah. I just think that bleakness was very important for me mm. I, I always wish I had my face shoved in that bleakness a bit more so do you yeah. feel that bleakness as well, Reeming, when you graduated. So I studied in Australia. I went to Melbourne Uni where I learned criminology and communications. So criminology was always like my backup plan. So I felt like you know, if I my media career failed, right, I'd just be a policeman. And, you know, <laughs> it's no, very no, different. No, actually, it's quite similar in a way because both require like empathy and understanding of greater society. When you study criminology, I think one of the things that they say is like crime is defined by what society does not like hates or does not want to do. And in some ways, content creation, you need to understand what is all about understanding society wow. and what are the needs of society as well. I mean, it's a pretty loose connection, but by understanding like basic human psychology, their motivations, the different theories, there's actually a lot in common. I didn't really feel the same sense of bleakness. Maybe it was because when I was in university, I was surrounded by a lot of wealthier friends. So when they went out, they all got jobs straight away. For me, I scored like quite a decent job because like my uni was paid for with a scholarship. That spot was always like uh, guaranteed for me. I got this job where I was paid 2007 
at 25, which, which isn't a lot, but I felt like, hey, actually they paid for my scholarship. All things considered, minusing away debt is actually a pretty good deal. But you did get quite a disillusion, right? Yeah, but that wasn't really the company's fault. But actually, it was because I eventually did not want to do the job that I scored. Yeah, yeah. So I eventually left after seven months, which is an incredibly hard thing to do. And there's like, there's a lot of guilt. And I still feel like guilt hmm. until today. Hmm. So for example, like my, my boss paid for my uni. Hmm. Then like, I don't believe in the work. Hmm. Then I, I leave after seven months. No I, bond. There's no bond, no one. And I wonder yeah. what it was that you were pursuing if you were seeking, because I noticed you have gone to many, many different places, many different jobs. You were a writer, you were a video editor, you were marketing. So what was it that was drawing you, if you will, going from place to place? Yeah. I always wanted to create work that has impact. Like, I think I'll die in a place where they told me like, oh, you write articles, but no one will see them. That killed me. La. And I felt like at the company which I was at, it was a very niche company. So I always felt like there's not enough impact. So I tried to look for impact in, in advertising where you know advertising is supposed to reach out to the masses. I think like everything yeah. you did after that, you always gravitated towards impact. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Like all and about, you like, were not numbers. happy when you were not able to get impact as part of your work. Yeah, because creativity is one thing, right? But you know, like the whole saying like uh, if the tree falls in the forest, does it even make a sound? And nobody sees it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It actually falls. Yeah, so I feel like if it falls in the forest, no one hears it, yeah. I don't exist. I've done nothing. Yeah, it, it did not make a sound. Right, right, right. So I went to advertising, which, yeah, there was some impact in, on, on some level. Then I went to journalism and mothership. I think I can confidently say, you know, there that there was real impact. Like, we reached quite a lot of people. We changed the perspective on quite a lot of things. Although towards, I was unhappy with the type of impact that I was complicit in. So that's the thing I'm curious about. You talked about impact. How did you define impact? Because it sounds like you define it by virality and how many shares and views. I think it's important to say like that is not the only way to measure impact, but it's one of the easiest ways to measure impact, especially coming from this industry. Because you can argue like for 100 years or whether or not like your article will change someone's life. But if if nobody reads the article, you can be damn sure no one's life will change. Hmm. Numbers is objective. Yeah. So I think in virality of creating content that is shared, I found like easy, if not flawed way to measure impact. Is that what matters to you then primarily? So so, I mean, impact, there's two ways, right? First, like, it has to reach someone. Then the message has to be meaningful. Yeah, meaningful enough to... What does it mean? Does it mean change behavior, change or... Yeah, it does change behavior. Make uh, somebody feel something. Educate yeah. someone, make them feel something. Right. I think I enjoyed my early days at Manship the most because it was about like entertaining people. I, I think it's witty. Like, I don't know if it's still... It can withstand the, the test of time today. We wrote one of like Lee Kuan Yew's. Kuan Yew's are funny father. Like one of his famous quotes. Like I will get up. And I wrote it in the voice of like different, different authors. Like Ernest Hemingway... James Joyce, J.R.R. Tolkien. They went viral. I was quite proud of like little articles like this because my friends would share me and I say, ha ha, it made me laugh. Back then, the impact that, that I had was that I was entertaining people and I think that was good enough for me at the time. It was much better than doing work that no one saw and no one cared about. Mm. And I think you also wrote this article about the King Cobra that fought the reticulated python. Yeah, yeah. Stuff. So, yes. So, that was also part of like the joy of mothership. Sometimes to entertain people. And sometimes it would be to create articles that I felt didn't really have a lot of meaning, but would entertain someone. It fulfilled like the first criteria of impact. Which right, is, right, right, right. Which, which is people saw it. A lot of people yeah. saw it. But did it change people's life? But your previous one, nobody ever saw it. So, at least it's better. Yeah, yeah. Right? Exactly, but exactly. the next one is actual change. Exactly. Right? So, Quantitative impact and qualitative impact. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. we can sort so see it that way. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think is the secret to virality? Because you had quite a few viral hits. Yeah, I, I think there's no secret 
to virality? It's a very complex question. Well, it's a very complex question. We actually have a five, six point PowerPoint presentation. Well, variety, the beast of variety. Yeah. Like, to me, it's like lady luck. Like, it's elusive. You shouldn't ever count on being able to just summon it at will. It might come when you least expect it and it might leave you when you need it the most. So I never ever guarantee virality. The thing to really focus on is value, not virality. That's how we kind of make our content. Yeah. But at Mothership, we really learned a lot about reality. Like, I feel like I got my ass kicked by it a lot of times because just like any old good news media platform that came out in, in the last few years, you have your, your equivalent in Malaysia like Sales, for example, right? So this thing called reality is basically you want a lot of people to share and see it. But we also quickly understood that some things were just like you mentioned the King Cobra versus Reticulated Python. I mean, two old guys fighting in Geylang and then captured on a crappy vertical okay, phone okay. thing. 220,000 shares. So great. Okay, a lot of people saw it. But as a writer, can I say that I did a lot for it? Maybe you can because there is skill in hunting down the story in finding it first and to put it out fast enough that it becomes the one that people share to say, hey, this happened, right? There's definitely a skill there. But can you definitely say, for example, in the reticulated Python or just two aunties fighting and they pull each other's hair and then the shopping bag fall and then all the shopping come out. Can you say that you are the one, like your eloquent writing in your prose, like made it go viral? Or is it just, it's two people fighting? Yeah, and then people yeah. like, is it two people fighting? Not to this the ability of these people find viral news. Like, but at first, a lot of people see it. Like, which is respectable. But I respect it even more if you can conjure it out of thin air. Yeah. If you just come out with something and people like it. That to me is... Creating uh, something that people like it. Yeah. yeah perhaps yeah. not another level of skill where it's a higher level. A but it's a different one that I prefer, I gravitated a bit more towards. So I think the secret to creating viral content is to put the audience first consistently. Both are very important. So put the audience first, basically give the audience what they want, understand your audience, create content that will resonate with them, entertain them, humor them. And the, inform them. Inform them, yeah. The other one is to do it consistently because some people create really good content then they stop. Mm. And then like, there's no consistency. La. And consistency is really like a huge part in creating variety. I've seen a lot of creators, they create like a great content series, but then they, they fizzle out. Maybe like the first six hits are viral. Then after that, do one with like only 12 shares. Then they get discouraged and they stop. But doing it consistently and improving yourself over time, not only do you develop yourself, you develop like the expectation that whatever content you put out will be good. And I think that usually helps with virality. Do you feel that at the point in time, even though you were aware that impact is so much more than just shares, that you were, if you were tying your self-worth to articles going viral, do you feel that that was happening to you guys? Yeah, for sure. I remember like having this insane, insane mood swing. So one day I'll write an article with like 500 shares. Now I feel really good with myself. Heavily researched piece that only got like 30 shares. Mm. And I'll feel damn lousy. Because in Marshall, we are already saying, you're only as good as your last piece of work. <laughs> so, okay, my last piece of work got 30 shares. Well, so I... I suck like, but, but I think to be fair to Mothership also, it was not like they don't recognize yeah. the value of a well-researched piece of work that has a lot of impact other than just going viral. They definitely did recognize that. It is just that you also, I mean, it's very understandable that in this age of social media, that reality 
is the premium thing that you want. So of course, we were also encouraged to, whenever possible, go viral so that Mothership could be the one to... I mean, we're saying a lot of things about Mothership that actually is not... We are just saying our interpretation of it. So yeah, we, we don't, we don't to, speak on behalf of... We don't of, speak on uh, behalf of Mothership. But to understand Mothership's situation also, it is very clear to see that going viral has immense benefits. Yeah. Immense objective benefits. And it's not like we don't respect that either because we still look for that in our current work as a work segment also. Yeah. Yeah, we learned a great deal from there. It was a great place to be. Yeah, and I think I also understand because nowadays people don't want to pay for news, right? Subscription model is just it, right? Yep. And you need numbers to justify page views. So in a way, by not caring about page views, there's a possibility you become a liability to the company. La. There's a very real chance that you become the employee who just say, oh, we should do original creative content, but you don't really produce the views. Yeah. So I think there's always something to be balanced there. Yeah, I feel like the correct perspective is you know like how cats are like they kind of want you to pet them but they don't want to show that they want you to pet them yeah so they just kind of look at you from the side like i don't really care but i can't care that's how you gotta treat reality like, you can't like go up to it and, hey, 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 please come to me yeah. like the cat, you gotta the cat uh, run away yeah, yeah like a pretty cool you know yeah. one, but we want it yeah, yeah that's the thing yeah I think, which and correct me if I'm wrong, you were also doing tunes or comics on the side as well. Yeah, I was just trying to express myself in another thing that I could own by myself and not have to run it through anybody. But I mean, to be honest, it was something that I just did for fun. And I had fantasies that, of course, you know, things would go viral. And some things did go viral. I mean, I made a couple of videos that had good traction here and there. And then some of my comic strips people would share. But I never thought about monetizing it and that is the big thing a lot of people can go viral to be honest reality is not impossible if you try long enough and hard enough and if you're honest enough it will just come but the real creativity to me right now is also how you can monetize it because if you're doing something amazing for society if you're doing a great page that society needs right i feel like a little bit of a responsibility to find out how to do it sustainably in terms of money so that you can keep doing it in a very honest way i think that's just part of the thing there's no good saying you know i'm doing it for free as a social duty okay that's all fine and great but can you find a way to make it profitable because i think society will benefit even more because then you can do it full time and you can do it in a way that you can stick close to your values because you do have an income coming in from that mm-hmm. i think that's the best way to do it. it's very difficult and you mentioned that you were not thinking about monetizing at what point did you become serious about it? Because I think you were also going on online forums and asking personal finance questions to learn more. Yeah, I was. But the online community, when it comes to personal finance, can be a little bit impatient. There's not a lot of people that really delve into personal finance deep enough in any given country, I think, that it would be considered mainstream. But people who do dive into it, get into it very, very, very deeply. And you can see why it's very gratifying, first of all, to earn money because it's something that a lot of society wants. So you feel like you're very smart, first of all. And then also, what is often a necessity when it comes to being a good investor or a good trader is the ability to go against social norms. So I find this online finance communities can be quite impatient when a newbie comes on. So I remember asking some very basic questions, not because I don't know the Google answers, but to really possibly stoke a more nuanced conversation among these experts. And some of the forums that I went to were, were quite hostile. So I find it very difficult as a beginner to even enter into the space and ask specific questions. Like sometimes it's not even like, I want to invest, I kind of know what I want to buy, the passive fund that I want to buy. How do I create the account? Like there are things like that. Then if they give me a quiz, because I need to create a stock account with uh, the Singapore government, that kind of thing, or banking system. Like, do I lie to answer the questions? Because if they ask for 
two years talk experience. Obviously, I don't have that experience. So do I just take it and then move on? It's great that I read Ming. So I can ask him these kind of stupid questions. And I really felt at that point in time, like, wow, somebody needs to exist that is like for the layman because like, mm. it's so good for the greater society and most people to really delve more into personal finance. But the barriers sometimes are so high. Yeah, it's very high. Yeah. yeah. Even going to create like a brokerage account, like yeah, it, I yeah. affect out so many times. Yeah. I create an account and I get stuck on the question like, yeah, yeah, no, 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 make it. Then I do that three, four times. Yeah, just know. give up. Then I get a bit further. Then what oh, is this person? No answer. I forget. Yeah. So, some people go through this process and like they don't invest for like seven years. Now invest, even though they the intention is there. The intention to start, <laughs> and that's how like procrastination happens. Right? So Rachel, you alluded earlier that you referred to reaming for a lot of these questions because you actually face something quite important in your life that caused you reaming to really care about personal finance. What was that? Yeah, so my mom had like a damn bad stroke in 2014 and we had to look into how we could possibly finance the recovery process. I mean, before that, I was really like, I really did some research about, about money stuff because I just became an adult, right? <laughs> but I think that was then I decided that, well, I need to become rich so that even if I had to drop everything and look after my mom in the future, like money wouldn't be an issue. So I started reading a lot about like all this personal finance stuff, saving, investing, earning insurance, that kind of thing. I would say that I am not like a super good investor. A lot of people think personal finance is about being a great investor and then becoming rich over a period of five years, purely through investing. But I would say what I am better at is Finding ways you can increase your income, which I feel is a more important priority in your 20s and 30s. Because if you never earn enough money, then you will never be able to invest a lot in reality. You mentioned getting rich. Do you have an idea or definition for what would constitute rich for you? Yeah, so initially before COVID, I had this figure in mind. It was like 500,000 sing. By the time I turned 35, I will invest that money and then I will get to work on things that I like to do versus like working for money. Now just let that 500,000 grow over 30 years, then I'll be able to retire as and when I want. So that was my initial goal, then unpredictable. And I should be pursuing like a slightly more ambitious goal if I have 20 million. <laughs> 20 million. I mean and if like I have the capability to do it, you know, I don't know. I think 1.2 million would be nice. Because in the future I might have kids. My you parents, want to be a buffer. Yeah, yeah, be a buffer lah, in case you need to change priorities. Yeah, my, yeah exactly. Things, because people change over life, right? And I have like elderly parents and even though they are financially okay what happens if they are suddenly not? So these are all things I have taken into consideration. But yeah, COVID has been a wake-up yeah, call. Wake call in many sense of the word. Before the 1.2 million, before the 500,000, there was the saving 100,000 before you turned 30. So yeah. how did that come about? So, okay, so I was uh, reading an article online and what is thing called the 4% rule. So the idea was that uh, you can expect 4% returns if you put your 100K into safer investments. Lah. So the idea I had in my mind was like, oh, actually, if I can save uh, $100,000, I will be able to earn 4000 of it every year. And that's one month off. And if I do it 12 times, I can basically retire. Lah. So I did some Googling. I found out like quite a few people were on their way to saving 100 k I think there's this blog I read, Budget Babe, reference now. So I actually tracked her journey. She also helped me with like a lot of resources in, in, in the beginning stage. Or like mindset change, things to do, and uh, little ways you can cut your spending. 
And that article actually went viral. And I wonder, do you know why that is? Is it because it was so unusual for people to even think about saving so much by that time? Yeah, I think a lot of people saw it as like a flex. Uh, like, you save 100k, ha, ha, now, like, wow, look at this person, you can save 100k. Where is your 100k? So I think there was definitely that, I would say, salty, salty angle there. You know, like I'm showing off, people felt like, oh, you know, wow, this person, save 100k, he's better than me, blah, blah, blah. I think that, that was definitely one of the, the reasons. Another reason I felt was like, I tried to make the article as balanced and as helpful and as inspirational as, as I could. Actually, I was in a, quite a, a dark place when I wrote the article. I had worked in advertising for two years then. And I think like, when you work in content and work in advertising, they're two different things. So from the mothership environment, I went to the advertising environment. I, I honestly didn't fare that well. And I remember thinking like, oh, how I wish I could create some sort of content to tell myself like, hey, actually I'm still quite a, a decent writer. I think I just spent one weekend like pouring my heart into writing this. I feel rather heartfelt piece and I didn't have the intention for it to go viral at all. I just wrote it with the intention of like expressing myself and really documenting all the emotions that I felt during like the three years that I saved $100,000. Maybe it was because it was quite a relatively novel concept at the time. And I think that, that definitely helped. Like, I think if you wrote about how to save 100k by 30 today, it will not get as much traction. Unless you do like 200k by 30, then yeah, I mean, the number just has to go up, right? And inflation. So once yeah. you got that virality, did you think of leveraging on that to build something? What was the plan? Not really, but that article gave me the confidence to quit my job then because I was feeling pretty shitty. La. So seeing an article go viral reminded me like, hey, actually, maybe I'm just not being utilized well. Maybe there's still value for me in some space. So it didn't really help me start work, work mean, but it helped me like have the confidence to, to leave my job. And then a uh, couple months later, we started with Simon for rebutting the motivations were different than we never thought of monetizing until Weichun started adding illustrations into it, I think. And were you surprised by the fact that once those comic panels were added, that it just went even more viral? Yeah, actually, I knew from the start already. I, I said like, hey, Weichun, I think you add your illustrations to it, right? I think you'll do them well. But I think he, he was very busy, so he, he sat on it for two months. I'm naturally very pessimistic, so like... Or you come here, assign me work to do, not paying me anything. So I, I procrastinated on it. I didn't really draw properly. But when we draw it and finally published it, it just went crazy. Uh, like 6,000 shares in the first week. And then we were like, wait, this is something. Yeah, Sorry, yeah, this, yeah. This, we need to now contend with this being a thing in our lives. Like, how do yeah. we do this? What was going on now? Yeah. Like, what happens now? You know. So how do you figure it out once you two realize that, okay, this partnership could actually work? What was the plan? Actually, our plan was just to create content regularly. Show people we could create content about boring stuff really well. Just mm. personal finance. Uh. Workshops. Yeah, sell workshops to companies on how to create better content. Yeah, so it's like if you are a big company, a corporation, and you you thought about creating your own B2C yeah. Facebook page yeah. and how to educate your potential customers, not even existing customers. You can be your consultants, uh, right? Yeah. Exactly. So we'll be consultants, we'll teach you guys how to do that. So work salary man was gonna be our portfolio. But then monetization came to us also. Like, we, yeah. we also didn't expect it to come the way it did. Then we just had to roll with it. Like our plans all went out the window and then yeah. we just did this other thing called sponsored content that we started doing. Yeah. And then that began the plan. And was this all under the umbrella of Woke Salaryman already? Do you already have that name or were you still trying out different variations? He made yeah. a Facebook page called the Woke Salaryman. Yeah. And the, the first thing that he posted was a Drake meme. 
you know the Drake did the, the yes and the no. Yeah, so he did one about that. If you go back far enough, you can still see that post. Like, we keep it up there like a, like a freaking relic or something. The second thing that we posted was the, the article oh, yeah. with, the, with the comic illustrations that did 6,000 shares. Yeah. So based on that, the work segment was already as is and we kind of understood it or something. So we're like, okay, let's make more, let's do more stories. If this takes off, we can do this, we can do that, you know, and yeah, yeah. it kept going. I think on. we never really had like a clear business plan. A lot of entrepreneurs say, oh, I, I knew this from the start. I think it wasn't like that for us. I was like a constant journey of like adapting, seeing what could work, seeing what could not work. Because I mean, we're also not expert businessmen or entrepreneurs. We're still trying to figure stuff out. I mean, I imagine to run Work Salary Man is so much more than just drawing and writing. You have to manage social media accounts. You have to reach out to people, interview people. So how did you figure out that division of labor between the two of you? I think most of the illustrations that only which we can do. And that's also one of the most labor-intensive and, and, and time-consuming parts. So I try to help out in the interviewing. The research, yeah, yeah, the research. you know, like talking to other experts about topics that we might not be experts in. Yeah. And then Ming starts most of the stories. Uh, most of it is he write either in a Google Doc or Google, Google Slides. Then he'll send it to me and I add sketches on top. I send it to him. He vets it. He did, oh, this one changed, we that one. Yeah. Oh, this imaging is problematic. We might get cancelled by yeah. social justice warriors. Then yeah. we change it. So it works in that, that way and I write some stories but he writes most of it. He's nice in that. He allows me to comment on the articles as well. So I'm not just drawing, I'm also a, a sub-editor and I vet it in terms of language, in terms of yeah, typos and stuff because in his speed of thinking, <laughs> there's a lot of typos and grammatical errors and stuff. So I'll clean that up. And then I also check it for laymanness. Like because if I don't understand it, like the average person and our readership is very broad. We usually have our stories written so the absolute beginner can understand. So if I don't get it, most people won't get it. So I always try to pull it down if it becomes too complex, you know. And it's very difficult because it's just in the nature of writing stuff that you sometimes look at it so closely, you can't really assess it from an mm. objective and mental point of view. So having a secondary eye, whether expert or not, sometimes just helps. Stuff that I've written, it has benefited so much from going through him also, just helping me check it. Actually, Weishun, uh, I think because he went, he, he, he did his master's. So actually, he has a very like academic way, which, which I really appreciate because like, I'm not like, the type of person or I just write like, what comes to my head. Uh, but he, I think he has a very like, good way of constructing constructing arguments and yeah, I use big yeah. words and stuff because big words is not just big words to, to, to sound pretentious like big words are precise yeah. I don't just say it's interesting I say it's compelling yeah. or it is gratifying or something like that yeah, yeah. and it's not just big words for the sake of it it's precise and also my academic rigor allows me to check some of the points that he makes because in academia if you write stuff right yep. you can't just say A, C, F you gotta go yeah. A list to B list to C list to E list yeah. So I always like, so can you say that? Is that proven? Yeah. Is that actually from a source? Is that a source? We need to put that source down. And my that's my weakness as well because I tend to be very pedantic and I can go on and on and on because I like to say the same thing and make the same point from different points of view. You probably will notice that throughout this interview at some point. So he is the copywriter. He writes stuff that is short that will convert into action. So he also will pull me back and say, okay, that's a bit too long-winded. Mm. You've already said this point three freaking times. Yeah. Let's just take this one, this is the most powerful one, and then we need to do the next point. So it's a good uh, yin and yang. Yeah, it's a combination of like two types of writing, uh, I yeah. would say. Yeah, so it's not just a writer and an illustrator yeah. relationship, yeah. which would, I think, limit a lot of the success that we've had so far. So us independently being, we check each other's mind spots quite well. I feel like this discussion is very important because it shows just how much work goes behind the scenes just to produce this one thing. It's not just 
one day and everything comes like so many different iterations and discussions. So how did you figure out your content creation schedule? Because as you mentioned earlier, that's the most important thing. You have to be consistent, consistent, consistent. But then yeah. there's so much work involved. <laughs> it's so hard to stay on top. So how do you figure it out? I think initially it was damn tough. Right? We wanted to publish like once or twice a month. But because we were still doing our full-time jobs then, it was damn challenging like, to come up with like two content pieces a month, especially with the type of illustrations that we actually had to do. So actually, we argue a few times about when to publish. Also, my weakness is that like I'll be like nagging him, like, hey, we now publish for, for 10 days already. Like, if you want to be a content page, you must do it consistently. But we should will be fucking enjoy until 2 a.m. What do you want me to do? <laughs> <laughs> so there was definitely that tension there. But but it was yeah. also very important for us to be doing this as a side thing because yeah. it meant that because we're doing nine to five and doing this as a side, right? We can't just be bought out quickly by anyone who wanted to sponsor us so we could really stick to our guns and turn down money on the table at a point where if we really quit our jobs to do work seminar for the get-go yeah. we would have really needed that kind of money yeah. and we might have taken on sponsored content that we did not feel like we should have taken on mm. and that I felt has made all the difference uh. so actually in hindsight it was a good move uh. yeah. mm. and I think the arguments also I mean I said it loudly just now but actually I did not say it like that uh. when we have conflict we're usually quite uh, we don't do that. Uh. So yeah. Usually, uh, he will also listen and try to see my phone. Yeah, I'm, I'm more naggy than aggressive. Uh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I, I, I get the cue sometimes and then I might also be annoyed, but I also understand that he's trying to make the content good and consistent so that our readers will benefit. Yeah. So based yeah. on that, we always trust know that, how right? to get yeah, trust. Uh. But, yeah. but initially, it was also like you said trust. So our working schedule was not very concrete at all. Like, yeah. Just when you want to pick some story out, he'll pick it, then he'll send it to me, I'll look at it, then when I can find time, I'll do it, then I send it to him. Yeah. Then we just kind of publish it, and the, and the schedule came from that. Nowadays, we try to post once a week, but uh, nowadays, it's not so much like, we are working, it's pretty solid when it comes to just work. But yeah. it's just when we expand, then when we think about other teammates coming in, then we need to worry about scheduling. But so far, not quite there yet. Mm. Going back to like content creation schedule, right? I don't think there's ever like, oh, it's Father's Day, so we should publish oh, this. Yeah, yeah. It's Mother's Day, yeah. so we should publish yeah. this. I think we just publish content that we genuinely think is, is useful or, and resonates with people. Yeah, if there's a chance to do something on Father's Day that yeah. resonates, we'll do it. Yeah. But for example, New Year, right? We didn't do anything. Yeah. We just didn't do anything. Right? Like, ah, there's going to be a cacophony of things. Just everybody doing, yeah. you know, New Year this, New Year that. What do you do? It's just let people do the thing. We will come back next week. Yeah, I think today, like, Women's Day, we don't really publish anything. It's not that we don't care about women. It's issues. just that, we, yeah, we just didn't have a great story to tell Women's Day. And, and we had yeah. done just recently, we did two stories about women. They were very women-centric. You know, one about uh, someone who just got divorced and then one about uh, a woman who struggled with the fact and her husband particularly struggling with the fact that he earned less than her. Yeah. So, I mean, okay lah. You know, I just reshare on my own LinkedIn yeah. about it. We just publish what we think is good or what is what is available. I, I learned this lesson in Mothership also. So, there was a period of time I went around at, at Mothership. I was shooting videos called Exploring Singapore. And this would be cool places of Singapore which I'll just go around with like a, a phone and shoot camera and I'll just film it. And I think the first few videos went viral because there were places that I thought were truly cool. But then when I boss said like every week you must publish one video. That is when uh, performance of the suffer because in my mind I have I was pressured to produce something by end of the week right? right and like the fact is there are only so many cool places in Singapore and I always thought that that 
it's quite similar with content. If there's nothing good to say or nothing useful to say, we're not going to publish something like meaningless just to fill in the void. Like we we don't believe in that. If you either say something meaningful or you don't or say you it. say nothing at all, right? Yes. Roland Keating said. I noticed you were only five months in and then you wrote a post saying that financial planners were taking your post and repurposing and using it as well. So I wonder if you could yeah. share that issue and how you dealt with it. That upset me a lot initially yeah, because I put in so much sweat right, after work. I sacrifice time I could be spending with my girlfriend slash fiance slash wife and then you just take it and then you take profits off of it and then here we are like worrying about monetization, whether we'll be able to make money from this, whether we will still be around in three months and then you start making commissions and money off of it by spreading our stories. I took it very hard at first and, and another thing that I, I was very upset Set was when people started translating our stuff without my permission or we reposting it without even tagging to our page. I, I really dislike the translation, not because of the notion of it. I think the notion is actually really cool that people found our stuff so resonant that they wanted to translate it. And nowadays, I, I just ignore it. Back then, I was very worried that because we were talking about financial stuff, right, this is stuff that potentially could affect the way that people invested for their future. So I also didn't want the translation to go by that we didn't way that they were talking about the terms because we also don't know uh, Indonesia or you know, Malay or my Chinese also not very good. Yeah. Uh, his Chinese also not very good. Yeah, so we don't want it to come out in the wrong context and have the wrong kind of slight connotation. Like little things like that really matter. Like no one's financial right. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Important. So I, I was always messaging people like, hey, can you please stop posting our stuff without at least linking to us because right now we are a young page. We don't even know if we're going to be around next month. So can you please at least give us the traffic because it's all we have. Nowadays, I don't quite care because there's just too many of them and it, it's still a bit upsetting sometimes when you just get like tens of thousands of shares and it's like, ah, yeah, nowadays, whatever. Yeah. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. So then, then I'm thinking about whether share watermark all the images. But I feel like watermarking it might take away the experience. Yeah, it will hurt the viewer experience. And we want to put the viewer first. But actually, right, it's more laziness on my part, to be honest. Because <laughs> I don't have to put a watermark in everything. But it might also help because if it's appropriated elsewhere, right, then they, they might wonder, hey, who made this? Then, oh, it's on every page. Yeah. But if you want to watermark, right, if you watermark by putting it at the edge, right, sometimes they will just crop the edge anyway. Or yeah, 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 yeah. So, so it decreases the viewing. But that's just part of social media. I've come to accept it now. Now that we are more known and less vulnerable, I just see it as a thing that just happens and I'm not that bothered by it anymore. But mm. when I started, I was so beside myself. <laughs> just, oh no, they're stealing our viewers. Yeah. But nowadays, I'm not worried because I mean, we are the originator. So we got to make it, then they can take it. Yeah. So, you know, it's not like they are taking away our ability to make it. Yeah. So we trust our ability to create good content consistently. A true threat would be if they started making stuff yeah. that we were going to make, like, we were just going to publish, then they publish and it's exactly the same, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is extremely, like, unlikely. Like. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you're a lot more established, so less concerned, but this is still an issue for young content creators who no one knows. So looking mm-hmm. back, do you have any advice or anything you would do differently that people can do now when they're just coming out? Early on, right, a mantra that we, we, we bore was quite undeniable. So there were a lot of things that we wanted to do. We, we always compared ourselves to bigger platforms and we were like, okay, we're smaller than them now. And we never wanted to really go out there and curry favor. Like, really, please uh, help us publish this kind of thing. Like, uh, please, please feature us. Yeah, please feature us. Can you, like, we just wrote this thing. So uh, it might be bad advice. Uh, so 
please take this with a grain of salt because outbound marketing is necessary in some cases. But for us, we really wanted to do less outbound and then force them to come to us. We always tilted our staff towards our readers and less towards possible clients or collaborators, so to speak. Yeah. We make it so that the readers come to us and when enough readers come to us, we will be so undeniable that the big players that we wanted to court would also then come to us as a result. Yeah. So this play doesn't apply to universally, so don't just anyhow copy. If you need to do outbound, please do your outbound. Very important. We are also starting to think about doing some outbound because we need time to do it. That was a mantra that we, we held very early on. But when it comes to advice that we did, something wrong that we did, then thing that comes to mind. I don't want to come out cocky also because, yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah. there's nothing that we did wrong. Confirmed or not, it's just that I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head now. But maybe one thing that I almost did was we had early investors that would come to us with offers and nothing against these investors. I mean, investors also need to get their money's worth. I understand that they will negotiate also. And it's not like I felt like they know more us. They certainly didn't. Yeah. But they gave us at the point of time very interesting offers that I was so taken by. But nowadays, it's actually very small money to us. But back then, I was like, oh, that's a lot of money. I can clear my debt with this one thing. Like. But actually, equity-wise, it would not have made sense. And I was very close to it. If Ming was not with me, I think I might have actually, if I was a solo founder, I might have done some of these deals. Not that they are bad, but uh, it would have been bad for us. I have a future vision of where the work salary man might be. If I was to sell, right, that future vision would sell for a lot more. Mm. So I'd rather build that first. Build that maximum potential you can be to sell. And then you try to find. And if you don't need the money, don't sell just to say, oh, yeah, I got yeah. venture capital funding. That would be my kind of advice. But I straight super close to it. Because now it's like the Vogue thing now is venture capitalism angel investors to come in early and then just pump it with money. But early on, our tenant was always about profitability first in a very old-fashioned way, yeah, you yeah. know. We're we wanted to be able to... cool company. We're, we're very uncool actually uh, in terms of like super conservative. We're not that brave. Man, uh. We seem brave because we quit our jobs, but we only quit our jobs when we were able to afford it. Yeah. And we had to have like three months or six months of indication that we would have enough salary to pay ourselves for the next three to six months. Then we quit our job. It's a super, super conservative story that's not that cool and not that sexy. We didn't like live until like our last cent. Then we yeah, yeah, it's yeah, not that kind no, of story. No such thing. Yeah, maybe it'll come next time. La. I have no doubt we will meet difficulty down the road. But so far, we have been very lucky. La. The lesson is just don't sell if you don't need to sell. Mm. And, and, and if you can hold out, hold out. What Rick Ming always told me, time, yeah. and this was advice that he gave me before I started to invest, is to save up six months first. Whether it's expenses or salary. I chose salary la, because salary is an even more conservative figure. I've always been super conservative. So that kept me very, very safe. And when I quit my job also, that kept me very, very safe. It's like more like not don't quit your job, but quit your job when you have enough money so you can make a real good go of it. Yeah. You can make your best shot at it. Don't like do one month and hey, no, no money, I gotta go back. Yeah. Then you didn't really take a good shot at it. That's how you can be consistent, right? You have yeah. like this watch chest that you can survive off while you yeah. take a shot. Yeah. Yeah. So when you took that shot, you resigned, you had that six month runway. Do you also already have clients so you could already estimate, okay, these are the profits that are coming in. At least I can last these few months as well. Yeah, all, all of those things. Yeah, all right. those things. Yeah. We, we, we took on clients and we were doing our 9 to 5 jobs for quite a while. It was quite crazy. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. It was really quite crazy. It was insane. We worked until like 2-3 every day. Yeah. It was a huge strain on the relationship. Yeah, so I would say uh, actually, yeah, yeah. Our, our girlfriend slash fiancé slash wives were... <laughs> 
okay, wife, I'm not about myself. Right. I'm not gonna put anything on him. All right, all right. No due pressure. Okay, thanks. But they, they really put up with a lot of shenanigans from us. Right? Yeah. They understood that this was something that we had to do, and I think it turned out well, right? But it could have not also. Right? Yeah, and I think relationship fun. It is not easy for a partner to do that, which is why a lot of people also don't go into starting their own thing. Ah. I understand business, then I oh, but that means you cannot yeah. have supper with me tonight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't do like. Yeah, but but good thing we started yeah. early, you know. Like if we have kids, ah, uh, yeah. How much harder would that be? Of course, like that would be even harder. harder. Yeah. If we're in our forties or fifties, then we're tired already. This might not even happen unless you are already like quite well to do in your in your forties. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You have that luxury to be able to just quit and do it properly. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, so I think we got the right combination of luck and then you quite hang la, quite understanding hang, yeah. partners. Quite lucky. Was it a difficult conversation telling them this is your intention, this is what's going to happen? I think with me, there were some arguments. And definitely for me, right? I told Rimi also at one point that I'm not going to do this forever. Lah. Like, if we keep doing this for three, four years and nothing comes to it, I will just stop doing it and I'll do something else. Lah. Because if I'm sacrificing my weeknights and weekend nights and it comes to nothing, there's no money coming in, I'm not doing this. Lah. Mm. And there are some things that I walked away from that I started with friends and I regret walking away from because they're successful now. So in different ways that I look back and go, wow, I, that I told them like, I'm, I'm walking away if I can't make money and there was no clear way to make money at that point in time. Yeah. And I walked away like, and I, I regretted for a long time, for a long, long time. I still regret it to a certain extent. But the great thing about Remy and I was that actually, right, before we started WorkSign, when we met socially, right, we always say, hey, how to make money, yeah? Like we just discuss yeah, socially yeah, yeah. for That's fun crazy, yeah. how to make money, right? So all it was always that. yeah, it was how to monetize, how to monetize. It was everything. never anything that I hate that I wanted work segment to be profitable. People ask me, hey, why is that work segment? Is it to help uplift the lower and the middle classes? Yes, that, but first of all, I wanted to make money. Yeah. But I never denied. <laughs> yeah, I mean I I I come from an agency where credit directors can be paid like 20, 30k, 20, 30K. for work that doesn't really have much impact outside. The industry, the they industry. win awards. Yeah. yeah. So if I'm making impact, then why can't I earn 20 to 30k? Also, if yeah. we're making impact with work salary, man, yeah. why shouldn't we be? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why not? Why One not? day we will maybe earn that much. Yeah, yeah, why not? Yeah. Right. Hopefully. Yeah. I mean, like we talked about successes and I think a lot of people would say that you have been successful in one year you had over 150,000 followers. Now it's over 202,000 on Instagram. What was it that drew people to you that allowed it to just grow so fast? First of all, I think last year, a lot of people started to take interest in, in money. Mm, so I think good. that definitely helped us. So a lot of it was also luck also. I think Wei Chun's ability to help simplify and present ways in a very accessible Visually, visual yeah, um, you do visual it, manner. You yeah. do it with words. Yeah, I do it with pictures. I would say really these two things and the fact that we did it consistently. Yeah. I mean, just want to stress like consistency is really super, super important. Mm. Yeah. And how do you build that community around you that's passionate to your brand? Because that's one of the things that currency creators always struggle with, right? Your core fans who really support you and if you look at the comments, you always get lots of comments and they really care about your characters. Like the marshmallow, I think there was once he appeared like a 101010. They were like, why is he like that? Where's the marshmallow? Why is he so hard? So they care a lot about what you're doing. Yeah, I think our approach has always been to be as transparent as possible and as be as authentic as possible. We even go to the extent of telling them, like, oh, this is how you earn money. This is a sponsorship post. These are our challenges when presenting content. 
I'm not sure whether this qualifies as a strategy, but we just tell them like, don't think of us as like some incredibly smart people with no problems. We have a lot of problems like running this page as well. And I think by, by sharing, it helps build an understanding. One thing I also try to do is, I used to try to reply every single DM that came in, but oh, nowadays it's damn hard. Like, because now we have 200k, so sometimes I feel guilty looking at all the DMs. But I think when you... Have to understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think it helps to be genuinely interested in people's progress. Yeah. Sometimes I still check in with people who have followed us since when we were at like 16k followers and I check on how, how they're doing. Yeah, because I truly care about whether or not, hey, have you stuck to your financial goals? Have you stayed invested? Do you have an emergency fund? Have you gotten an insurance plan you're talking about getting uh, one year ago? You know, what's your current progress like? So I think that definitely helps a lot because on their end, they feel like someone is caring. And my end, it lets me see like the real impact that they were having. Someone actually... Stop gambling because of us. Someone started saving because of us. And I think like it makes it like super worthwhile to me. What's the most meaningful impact story that you've had? Yeah, there was this kid who texted me anonymously, say like, hey, thank you for your content. It really inspired me to get my finances in check. I come from like a broken family and I haven't really had had the best start. And I got into like a gambling addiction for like the past few years. But I read your content and I'm going to to get out of it. When I read it, I was like, them, them touched her. Because I don't think in advertising, I would ever be able to help someone with like a decision like that. It's quite a privilege to be able to do something like that and also while earning money at the same time. And I think one of the things that we have to talk about is finances because it's one thing to do a passion project, another thing to run a business. I understand that very quickly within the first few months, you got your first sponsor post from CPF and they approached you. Yeah, yeah, thank you. How did that happen? You must have done something right. I think they just emailed us and I said, okay. No one, because we were hashtag undeniable. Yeah, we tried to reach as much as possible, be as genuine as possible. Be really, truly helpful as possible. And I think CPF probably thought, like, hey, they can probably do some content for them. And then, yeah. I mean, we genuinely think it's a good product for the right people. Yeah. So, I mean, we were saying things about it anyway, and then yeah. they noticed. It was a very organic collaboration, actually, that first mm. one. It was a lot less troublesome than I thought it would be. They were yeah. actually very nice, actually. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they were pretty taken aback on how unfiltered our opinions were on CPF were, and I expected them to push back a lot more mm. and say, oh, this cannot say, that cannot say. But, like, yeah, they actually really opened and it was really uh, refreshing. Even today, we try to keep the, the same thing going, you know. We try to publish stuff that we will have published anyway. So it really helps to be uh, authentic. Uh. So we will not like go out of our way to sully our brand values by creating something that we don't believe in. For example, buy a new Mercedes. I mean, we'll never carry content like that. So a lot of our content, because it's all organically based, like meaning, right? Say if I talk to client A and then we develop an idea, we will believe in idea A so much that even if uh, client A backs out, we will either be able to run it ourselves yeah. or we believe in it so much that we can sell it to another client and it becomes a long. So nothing is wasted. Um, yes. when, you, efficient. when you're authentic, nothing is wasted because even the client stuff that is rejected, you can post it anyway. And some, some of our negotiations have went that way where we develop something with the client initially, they're okay then. Yeah. Later on in the later drafts, they are not cool with it. Then we say, okay, la, then man, la, the, yeah. you don't need to pay us. We cancel it here and then we'll just run the story. Yeah. And it gives us a little bit of bargaining power and it helps us to be super authentic. And we found that the authenticity is super important and what's keep, it's what keeps people coming back to us uh, because we are very upfront with how we make money. Was this policy something you implemented from the start? I mean, I may imagine when you were just starting, 
when you get all these offers, it's very hard to say no. You would want the money, but then you also want to stay true to your values. Yeah, I don't think it was hard, and this is a very privileged way. It is privileged. Yeah, because I mean, when we started work, I mean, with a list yeah. of don'ts, list of we don't want to be this kind, this kind, this kind, this kind. And we had learned from our previous experiences throughout our various companies yeah. how difficult it is to negotiate with clients. with the clients if you are not authentic in the first place. So yeah. it was very important that we have been creating content before that. So we had a precedent and we knew what we were doing. Yeah. We can fight back and say, look, we've done this before. Do you want to have shitty content? Yeah. Yeah, we've done it before. Do you want to do this? So if we follow you, we lose, you lose, the reader lose, everybody lose. Yeah. So we'd rather just walk away. Yeah. So having that experience helps so much. And of course, having money helps. I mean, I already had 100 Okay, save them. So do I was on my way. Yeah. I had my six months already. Yeah. yeah. So like, do one, do one. I mean, I rather invest long term in my brand than take your money to create a possibly lame piece of content that will hurt my brand. I mean, don't get us wrong. Uh, there are dollar signs that will make me question my integrity. Yeah. If say a client will just ridiculously say, "Oh, I'll pay you five million dollars for an article." Seriously, uh, like if you are a fan of work segment, right? We would take it, man. Uh, then we would. <laughs> It's something we would do, right? There yeah, is that yeah. kind of stupid money, but people are not stupid, right? Their clients yeah. are also not stupid. So that's not going to happen. Yeah. So we understand the real value of playing the long game by yeah. keeping our brand on that thing. And we turn down so much money sometimes. That makes me like, oh. Yeah. Maybe this is controversial, but I think you need money to be authentic and have values you can stand by. It's very easy to say like, oh, I will never do this. It's a sellout. Yeah, it's, but then like, if you have no money, right? Beggars can't be choosers. You just do every single thing, even if it's not authentic. Yeah, ironically, I found right that I was sort of not very rich and I had a lot of integrity and a lot of things to say. Then I had a mortgage and stuff. Then I had to sell out for a while and, and I joined a job that mm. was not really my calling or my passion. But I earned quite a bit from it. I joined a medtech firm where they agreed to pay me $6,000 to just do design stuff and marketing. And actually, because I sold out and I started earning good money from that for a while and I had my six months, right? Then that money that I earned selling out allowed me to give me enough cushion to be authentic and not ultimately sell out later on. Yeah. So it also depends. You can sell out in a way that you keep your eyes on the price. You know, I'm selling out now to accomplish something even bigger. You may doubt me now, you may think I'm selling out, but you wait five years, I'll come back, I'll do something amazing and you'll think, wow, oh, long he was biding his time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I think important to tag onto that is that even though you sold out, the people around you didn't call you out for it, right? They didn't look down on you for doing that. Not just being now. So I, I'm a passionate artist and I've always been, I still am to a certain extent. And I thought like, what are my peers going to think about this that I, I am not thinking of? Actually, nobody cares. <laughs> and all my peers are like, yeah, it's very hard, you know, like I also, well, I wish earlier I did this and nobody cares. And if somebody cared, they're either not telling me or if they cared, right? They are free to come and tell me and make a case, but in all likelihood, it will be not a good case. And then I would just, you know, be friends with me, don't be friends with me, then I don't care. Like, yeah. like, seriously, unless you are willing to pay me to not sell. How about you pay me 4K a month? Then? <laughs> you just pay me and I'll never sell. How about that? Yeah, but, but none of my peers would obviously have the wherewithal to even do that or the even inclination to do that. Yeah. So actually, my peers didn't mind and they actually, most of them had told me, hey, it's them cool. <laughs> I was really, I was so worried that y'all would just be for it. But nobody judged me out. Did you have trouble selling out? No way. I mean, I always tell them, go do sponsor content for like, I don't know, one, two weeks, then you try. Then usually they try and then they're like, okay. I get it. It's I tough. get it. Creating content itself is hard. So yeah, I think to everyone who criticize sponsor content out there or running a pitch, you try to make it sustainable first. Then you can come and talk yeah, to yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. Because like we will not- And we will listen. Yeah, we will listen. listen. 
But we wouldn't have conversations with people who have not created stuff before and still want to like niam on like how pages are sustainable. Because like, you didn't even do things like, why should I even listen to you? You know what I mean? Could you share a bit about how you think about the negotiations with clients? Especially when you're just starting, you don't really have that kind of power, right? And then slowly you gain more authority. So what are the important so, things to bear in mind? So actually we had the power from the very beginning, simply because of our privilege and then do this as a side hustle that yeah. gave us the ability to say no so i think even during our first year we turned down i think close to 50k worth of business which is quite unimaginable for a first year startup yeah that, that is like a salary when i was at mothership yeah. imagine like turning that down could be like half a year of uh, expenses for a small company with rental space right? yeah yeah but we managed to do it because we had substantial savings own savings and we also had a, a stable job negotiation there have been people who tell us like, no, you are very expensive or what. But I think market research always helps. So what I do is like, I look at other people's rate card. Then I see like, oh, what, what are the rates? Mm, then like, oh, can we reach their reach? If we can, we will charge what the market is charging because I'm not going to undersell ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. If creative directors can be paid $3,000, then why? Why? Oh, no, be, no, yeah, no. Why cannot be paid $3,000? Yeah, right, right, right. So it, it has never been a struggle for me. And maybe I'm very mercenary that way. But... I mean, I, I feel this is what it takes to run a page. Like. You must be aware of what your competitors are charging. You either provide so much value and, and undercut them, which I think is not helpful, or you charge competitively yeah, so the whole industry can be sustainable. And I wonder that you are obviously earning all this, but then you also have a burn rate. I mean, you run your own office, you're going to get someone else on board. I think you also have freelancers as well. So how do you think about managing all these things while you're still running this relatively young startup? Wow. So actually, our office is very cheap. Yeah, our office is around 1k a month. Yeah, which for the area that we're in, which yeah. is pretty damn central, yeah. it's pretty cheap. Uh, like, we knowingly took on some of the possible cons of this place. I mean, it's not in a bustling startup hub. I mean, like, you walk outside, it's, it's just a like, de- It's a deserted mall. Yeah, it's a deserted old mall. There's a fortune teller right there. Describing All right, sure. the scenery. Sure, okay. Made agency, travel agency. It's, it's an oldish mall. Not very... Startup, we were thinking about doing like co-working space. Yeah. It seems more of the vibe, free coffee, that kind of thing. But we eschewed that for a much more humble and I think on-brand location actually. It is mm. within our values to get a place that is cheaper yeah. than what actually we can afford. Yeah. You know, live be- below our means. Yeah. I think when it comes to employees, I calculated like at least be able to take that on for a year. If not, be irresponsible. I mean, the priority is to pay them first before we pay us. So right now, when we do sponsor content, we're like, okay, you know, all this, we will, we will set aside for cost first. We break even first, then we talk about making money yeah, yeah, for, yeah. for ourselves. Like. We try to be more responsible uh, employers. For example, we hated this practice of asking your staff how much of the salary, then base it off like 20% more or, you know what I mean? The jump that annoying process they do in Singapore. I think for us, I want to do it like differently. How much you want? Yeah, so I just ask, hey, how much you want? Or I want this much, then I... Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I, no, I just look, or like, 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 can we can we afford it? Do you think we can do it? Okay. Yeah, I think can. Okay. Yeah. Don't lowball your people. Like, because that's not a good way to get any people worth, worth hiring. They will not come to a company that will lowball them. Unless they but, are in desperate. How did you know you were ready to take on another person? It was when we had to work, right? Not because we didn't feel like it didn't fit. We were turning down work because we had no capacity to fulfill it. Yeah. That's when we realized like there's too much coming in. And I'm okay with turning down stuff 
all day long if it's just because the fit is not right, you don't get our values, our brand. Mm. But when we're turning and now just because cool oh, no, no capacity, yeah, we're turning now cool stuff. Yeah. Just because we have no capacity, then it forces us to grow. And I'm a very independent person. I thrive off of being a very independent problem solver. Everything I don't know, I'm going to look up and learn myself. That's why I have a wide set of skills that I like. I can do web design, I can do videography, I can do photography, I can shoot uh, complete corporate videos, I can draw, I can animate, I can do a lot of things, I can do motion graphics, a lot of stuff. But I also understand that maybe the way for me to grow now is to learn to delegate and to also learn to multiply my skill set and my wisdom, so to speak, across other people's. I mean, for me, it was like very, very difficult also. I'm, I, I can be quite a micromanager. So letting go of like control I'm still quite stressed about yeah, it yeah, yeah. and it takes some time to trust someone but I think what drove me to telling Rachel hey I, I think I need to hire someone was like well, I was just doing this pulling this late night until 4am basically for 2 years uh, since we started work segment until January this year and I just felt like oh, I can't do this forever so maybe I'll just hire someone to just help me out we don't earn so much money but yeah. it's about sustainability we can do this for longer I mean I, I saw it as two parts yeah. one is that we stay as a two man team but we charge super boutique prices so we charge a, a lot a lot of money and we only do like one or two sponsored stuff a month and that's us yeah. or we take on more people give up a little bit of control and there I say quality although that's debatable mm. because you can do it in a way where quality is not too diminished or compromised yeah. and then we, we grow and I felt like the second one is more the way we need to grow I mean who knows maybe we will find out this is all a mistake Go back to being two of us. Yeah, we will view, maybe we review this podcast like five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, what to when be? we last left, the book salary man, you know. Uh, hey, hey future Remy, am I am I right or wrong? Hey, yeah, yeah. Please, please let me know. Because <laughs> you were wrong. Yeah, yeah. The one that swung it for me was one of our friends who was a very successful. Uh, her name is Juliana, and she runs a. Shout out to Juliana. Shout out Juliana. Yeah, yeah. Asian Scientist she, Magazine. Asian yes, Magazine. Yes, exactly. Yes. yes. Yeah. So she told us that. Well, actually, it's not just about what you're talking about. If you have more people, you can do more things. And when, when, when we visited her, she was doing a whole bunch of stuff, like charity here, videography section here. Yeah. And then, you know, like diversifying in all different ways. And then she herself is also doing a lot of LinkedIn promotion stuff. That's really cool. It's like, how does one person do so much? You hire, no? Yeah. So that, that's where I hope we can be as well. That, that we can outsource and delegate enough that we can then work on the new pillars. Yeah. That's what I hope. I think in the future... We might want to expand overseas as well. When that's involved, like it can't be a two-man operation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're talking about impact, right? What would be the biggest impact is for Ocean content to reach other countries on like a larger scale. Right now, really reach people far, far away, but I feel like it's in, in small pockets. Mm-hmm. There are people like Trinidad and Tobago. Mm-hmm. Nigeria. It's really cool, but I would love to do a proper yeah. campaign. Like yeah, we, yeah. we really go inside yeah. the country. I would love to be our generations reach that for that. Yep, yeah, yeah. That's our goal. Yeah. Yeah. Can't be a two-man operation. Probably it will be something. Yeah. yeah. I think still can, but it's good with them. Yeah, I also want to like, like I've been hustling since I was 25, so seven years already. Yeah. Oh, it's damn tiring. Time to start winding the hustle operation down by uh, getting people to help. Yes. Do you feel like the content itself might change a bit? Because right now, what you're drawing, you deliberately make it as Singaporean as possible, right? Like drawing HDB flat, so it's very recognizable. So if you expand, you will probably change some of the way you do things as well. I I, I, I don't think it needs to change in terms of locality because, I mean, we, we consume stuff from Japan. Well, I remember watching Doraemon when I was a kid and I wondering, hey, why they don't have seeds on it? Why they all sit on the floor? 
all these things of why, why do they sleep and then they're going to roll up their stuff and then put it back. And then you just learn it. I got very used to seeing the, the Japanese suburbs, for example. It is just that the Japanese anime culture, for example, and, and the output was so compelling, right, that we just learned their culture. And I was always wondering, and this was part of my writings that I did as my part of my master's thesis. As, why can't we do that in Singapore? Why can't we just say Singapore flats are like this and then people go hey, why the housing all like that why the laundry all hang outside then they go and look up and oh Singapore is like that actually because land scarcity compact housing you know yeah. this is national housing development and they learn a lesson also I don't see why we can't just export Singaporean locality out and we're facing that a little bit sometimes when our stories reach Typically, Western audiences that assume that everything on the content is just made with US, US, US. The, un- that the United States as a default, but I think it's due to change like that. They will start to just have to reckon with the fact that I mean, it's just made overseas. Yeah. You know, and it's very cool like, that our stuff is made, made it so mainstream sometimes that people will see it and, and start looking at it from a US point of view. But it's also, I think, a little bit of a limitation on their part that they should be able to understand that not everything is just made with you and yeah. default. Like. And I feel like as, as Singaporeans, like, I mean, who else better to talk about money? I mean, we live in the most expensive city in the world. Mm-hmm. Our uh, people are trained to be the best yes. employees, not necessarily the best uh, entrepreneurs. So, so, the, so the Singaporean story and identity actually is a very good place to start talking yeah. about. It's, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a very good foundation. You right, know? right, right. You talk about like, wage, wage slavery, right? So, yeah, of course they think that it's understandable why and yeah. they have expertise to talk about. And Talking about like hyper capitalistic society yeah. where we always have to make practical decisions over like things like passion, dreams. Yeah. I mean there are, there are probably other countries like, like Japan or this, but Singapore provides like a very good backdrop against there is a real story there, yeah, yeah, that we can leverage. I have no qualms about it being true to Singapore. And I think if we ever have people writing or making stories for us overseas and they, they can find their own truth and depict their own yeah. settings, why not? Yeah. Why not? So I think it doesn't need to be a pure Singapore thing. It's just honesty, la. I just like honesty. As so if you are doing it in Brazil. Draw the favelas or whatever is true yeah, to you. I'm fine, fine with fine. that. Yeah. And what have been the biggest highlights so far in doing this? For me, right, it was when Lee Sien Long shared our thing about Father's Day. There was a, a story about his father getting retrenched in 1976, uh, 1997. Yes. So Lee Sien Long doesn't share a lot of things. His wife shares a lot of things. His wife, Ho Ching, shares a lot of things. We've always been gunning for her to share because the likelihood of her sharing something is high. really high. Yeah. She shares a lot of stuff that she finds online. But we never can before. But we never, we always like, wow, one day Ho Ching will share our thing and then that's the next thing we will take off. Yeah. So Ho Ching, I don't think still has shared our things, but for... Ho Ching, you're watching this. Yeah, share. Cons- consider sharing something sometime. Oh my God, please. Yeah. please, please. So for the PM of the country to share, I just went, wow. What is going on? And then people were texting me like, oh, congratulations, you guys have made it. Yeah. So it was kind of good and also kind of neutral because I started wondering, why is everybody congratulating you? So what now? Like, Do I just get, I'm very rich now. Does money come to me now somehow? Because it's just a PM sharing my thing. But actually, there were a lot of very good ramifications that came out of that. I, I'm so happy that in us telling his story and we took great pains to tell that story. I drew a generic tea factory and I asked him, actually, what does a tea factory look like back in your father's day? And he showed me like it was completely different. Right? So I, I actually did many, many versions of shipyards. That's what I think. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So it's very authentic. For that to come out in that way, for the leader of the nation to share it, in memory of his father, who is actually a great founding father of Singapore, that just I it blew my mind. Yeah. That was very gratifying for me. Wow, and I never saw it that way. I'm gonna tell my dad, hey dad, you were compared to founding father of Singapore. So there's somebody read your story and thought of Lee Kuan Yew. Yeah, 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 yeah. Shit, that's and crazy. it's Lee Long though, not just anybody. I text him now. It's his birthday. Oh, <laughs> happy birthday. <laughs> what do you think drives you, I suppose? 
it's very clear there is so much work that's involved. And this is not a sprint, it's a marathon. So what is it that keeps you going constantly doing this? One is obviously money. If I wasn't earning more than my previous job doing this, you won't be doing this. I, 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 would, I would not be doing this. I'm not like a Buddha or be like altruistic. Buddha like the second thing is really impact and knowing that your work helps people. We get it. I mean, we are fortunate to get it like real feedback on whether or not our work sucks or not or whether or not it's helpful. So that is the kind of uh, feedback you don't really get with a lot of jobs. Like you can be an accountant, then you, you can work on it for like 20 years. The impact well, is not guess, really, it's quite hard to measure, especially in like a more uh, direct way. Yeah, unless you are like a stand-up comic, for example. There's not a lot more immediate feedback that you can get. I mean, stand-up comic, you say they laugh or they don't laugh, then that's your feedback. That's yeah. even more direct, but I think this is yeah pretty close, right? So it's like the ikigai, right? You're good at it, society needs it, you earn money from it, and you like doing it. That's yeah. the four, that's our ikigai. Yeah. For me also, I feel like money is number one for me. Yeah. And now that money is settled, right, I feel like it's great that we have money sort of stable-ish. So we can now start thinking about impact. And for me, the impact that I really like to get is to raise the lower and the middle classes up. Yeah. I genuinely believe that if you start thinking long-term and start thinking just long-term like, about personal finance and even just start to think about personal finance, right, that everybody in society benefits, even the people at the top. Because a lot of people talk about reducing the gap by bringing the top down, then giving it a bit more to here. That's but a Michael Thatcher move, by the way. Sorry? That's Michael Thatcher, right. That's a Michael Thatcher move. I would rather push this. I want to make sure that this line, I don't care about the gap as much as I want to make sure that the bottom right can move above whatever the, the, the bottom previously line was. Yeah. Move it above and not just the bottom but a survival point where people can start making long-term decisions about money. I had this incident happen to me where my, my girlfriend's shoes were stolen and I was very angry at the person who stole it. I, we eventually found the person and I stalked this person's like Instagram and Facebook and all that. Like, what kind of asshole steals shoes like this? But I also later found out that this person was in and out of prison. He had a very tough life probably. Yeah. And I put myself in his shoes, haha. And I realized that, well, for somebody who is barely making ends meet, worrying about making this month and maybe even last month's rent, I have not even paid it yet. How can I expect this person to think about his future, yeah. to not get into jail because already having a black record is bad. And if I see a pair of Doc Martens that worth $200 on the resale market, how can I not take it? So everybody to get more enlightened about money, to understand what is realistic targets to hit and how much do I need to earn and to spend to hit my targets in life, I think it will help everybody in society. Not just in terms of what I talked about, in terms of like making long-term and then not stealing things and making bad decisions and doing crime, but also in terms of purchasing power for people who start businesses. Everybody wins. Now there's like, there's like this work thing going on. Right? Talk about social justice. And they do it in the name of spreading awareness. I raise awareness about income inequality. I raise awareness about mental health. I mean, which is great and all, right? But what is the next step after awareness? For me, it's always been in action. And I feel it's too easy to get caught up with like, I share this thing, I've, I've done my part. Okay, now I can fuck off. I've done everything already. It's the responsibility of, of people. If you really believe in it, to start doing tangible things that can help people. Maybe it's about really giving financial aid. Maybe it's about giving them uh, opportunities for mental health. Maybe it's about giving them free counseling, giving them access to therapy, reducing their wait times to therapy. Because if not, it's just, a lot of showboating, a lot of, uh, hey, I did this, I shared this thing, therefore I'm a champion of this and that. No, no, I mean... Having money helps that a lot. Yeah. There's this saying, like, it's always attributed to Gandhi. Like, I don't think Gandhi said it. Be the change you want to see in this world. And for me, like, work segment is... The change that you yeah, want to that see. I want to see. That I can actually do with the work that I do and with the money that I have. 
So we've been talking about personal finance so much. For those who are just starting into it, what other tangible steps they can action to start on their journey? Most important thing, if I say only one thing, is to figure out how to earn more money. Understand supply and demand, understand why you're paid this way versus like someone who's paid more. Increasing your earning power is the most important personal finance move you can do that has the most impact. That is the big one. Like, especially when you're starting from the bottom or you're just yeah, starting from... Especially there. from you zero to... 100k, 200k, this is the most important thing. So maybe you say, what are the three things that people do to increase wealth? Yeah. So, okay, so, so, so earning, yeah. So earning? Yeah. Earning, saving, and then uh, investing. So obviously saving is always there. You, you, you just don't spend like a ridiculous amount of money. You just live below your means. That, that is very clear. But earning is slightly more complicated because there's like an ego thing involved, right? Like you, you tell people like, hey, you should earn more money. Like, yeah, why is money so important? You know, and then there's like that whole veneer of like, I don't want to earn more money because I'm not so money-minded. People are afraid to be seen as money-minded. But okay, in reality, most people will be better off making more money, right? I I, I think it's damn rare to find someone who's like, oh my God, I, I, I wish I didn't make so much money. I think that type of person is very rare. So to earn more money, you just need to find out like what skills are in demand, you know, what do people need? And then learning how to market yourself, score those jobs that people want to do. And there's a great difference in knowing how to do something versus telling someone how to do something and getting the role. Because I think Singaporeans and, and maybe Malaysians to some extent, we are quite like reserved people. So always like quite paisay to talk about our achievements or what we can do, what we can value at the company, even like negotiate salary. So many times we sell ourselves short as opposed to like the more assertive cultures. Like. Which is to be more Western. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Then good yeah, you know, I, I want to be paid $8,000. Then people are like, oh, yeah, $8,000 is fine. Then you have like the underpaid local who's there because the salary hasn't increased because they don't dare to ask. They feel say Maybe it's like they expect like the salary to be increased every year. I, I would say like, just push past all this like mental gymnastics and be very clear on how much you want to earn and really go ask for it. I think that's the number one most important thing. The other one is sleep below. I mean, so obviously if you cannot afford something, you don't buy it lah. In Singapore, typically the things that people overspend on is like their house. If they buy a house that is too big for them, in a location that is too central for them, and a car. Singapore is quite a convenient place. So these are the two big things I would say that kill people's finances. The issue is actually about the opportunity cost. Because instead of buying these things, you could have invested the money and be making money instead. Versus buying these things and I mean for a car in Singapore, it expires after 10 years. That's it. It's quite a bad investment. And for a house, right? Unless you can sell your house, you don't really monetize your house. You can't really earn money from it. Or unless you, you rent out, which a lot of Singaporeans don't do cost very high sales. So living below your means is also really important. But the last one is start investing early. But when I say investing, I don't mean like picking stocks. Because all the effort to pick stocks when you are damn young, I, I don't think it's worth the time. I think some personal finance experts out there will disagree. Some bloggers out there will also disagree. But I mean, we to, to each their own, right? The time is better spent increasing your income. That doesn't mean you should not invest at all. You just invest through the index or passive investing. Like through a robo-advisor or you buy like these things called index funds or ETFs yourself. Or if you really, really like are clueless about money, like worst case scenario, you can go through a financial advisor. All three of these are fine. The important thing is to start investing early because I mean, I'm sure you heard of like the magic of compounding. So last time you press the calculator, then you, the more times oh, you so press, cool. oh, oh, the number oh. become bigger and bigger and bigger. That's essentially what the power of compounding is. Like. So the idea of like, first you have 100%, then you earn 7% interest, then it's 107%. Then you earn 7% of that. Which is? I, I don't know. Like, don't, don't stress <laughs> me. Yeah. Then 7% of that. And you pay over and over again until you, you get a lot of money. And I wonder for other content creators, what's the one big piece of advice you will have for them? 
Reality is something good that comes from trying to deliver value. So it's focus on value. But also, I would say, don't be too cocky about the way you do things. Mm. Like I'm trying to wrap my head around TikTok and I just like, I'm so ready to give up on it because it's so short form. I just can't understand it. But like, I'm more of a YouTube guy. I like long form stuff a lot. I love podcasts. And I just don't get TikTok, but I still have to learn from it. And what I'm trying to do is to apply the things that I learned from TikTok to the way that I might start doing my YouTube channel if I start one. I've already started one, la, but it's very fledgling. La. So what I try to do is to be less pedantic and just get to the point as quickly as possible to make it as short as possible. But still, it will run in the 20-30 minute mark. Also, I mean, social media right, changes all the time. Not even social media, content creators. We're still yeah. in the information age. People say the information age is, is coming to an end, but we still very much deal in the business of information i mean if you are doing a content creation where you're making some kind of entertainment thing then it's show business yeah and the rules actually have not changed you're entertaining people it's just that the place that you're doing it is different yeah and so the way that you are making your show and your business and your information business is different and you have to adapt right i'll never be so cocky to, to think that i'm above facebook or that yeah. i'm better than all these platforms that I'm yeah. on. We add a lot to Facebook because we create content on it, but I would never say that I'm better than Facebook and I don't ever need Facebook. I will need whatever else people are flocking to. Yeah. If people flock elsewhere, I had to learn the rules of that engagement. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mentioned earlier about earning power. I really, really understand supply and demand yeah. Yeah. and know that you are not Invincible, even after you've created something. I always joke with Rachel, like, hey, what's that man? I shut down in five Yeah, minutes. we joke, but it's all the time. Yeah, we yeah. talk about it all the time. Ah, three months, maybe we yeah. Actually, it's only half joking because trends change so fast, right? And we are fully cognizant that this might not last forever. This might not last. And you do the best you can, but also don't get your identity like too tied up in it. For example, if who's that man, like, dies three years from now and future remains this like if I was right. Then I think we will both be okay with either we go start something else or we, we go our separate ways. We'll go back 9 to 5 yeah. also fine. Yeah. yeah. If some form of success falls into your lap, try to take it, try to write it, see where it takes you, but, but never let it become your identity. Mm. Yeah. So if it ends on this thing, oh, that's it for me. Like, yeah. My heyday is over now. Yeah. So maybe you also mean die. Maybe in the future we'll do something else. Yeah, do something else. Bigger. Yeah. Who knows? But still okay. Yeah, I have a yeah. kick-ass portfolio. I yeah. can probably get a decent nine-to-five job from now. Yeah, so like, ah, that'll be fine. I mean, we are very privileged in the way that we have gotten the opportunity. To we work try, hard. Try. We freaking did a side hustle while doing a nine-to-five job, and it paid off. Yeah, we got something out of it. Even if this all crashes, we got something good out of it. So yeah. don't get too tied up in the fact that yeah, you know, the works are even yeah, yeah, this yeah, you yeah. know yeah. Don't let it become your identity. Because sometimes that leads to like hubris and pride and that prevents you from adapting. So one of the big new platforms now is Clubhouse, which both of you have yeah. been on. And I really enjoy reading the rooms that you've been running, especially the one on freelance writing. There was a lot of sharing. Juliana was there too. And the two of you recently ran one where you only spoke Chinese. What do you guys think of Clubhouse? I think it's LinkedIn on steroids. Steroids. Yeah, I think LinkedIn on steroids. Uh, I don't think a lot of people are on it, but I think Clubhouse made this very like clever move to make it iOS only. I think a lot of like thought leaders are using Apple. Like, I actually talked to like the, the one FC guy. The fact that there's no video allows certain types of people to share more freely compared to let's say like Zoom, where you can see yourself and become very like self-conscious. So Audio is always a very like intimate form of communication. So it kind of replaces radio in a way. I'm just really curious because you guys are so visual. 
And this is an audio platform. This is maybe where I struggle. So now that you said the, the yang, maybe I'll say the ying. And I will disclaim the hell out of this because I, I would hate for this to be taken out of context. And then Clubhouse become the, the biggest damn thing. And then, like, oh, this idiot. Is it Clubhouse or uh, stupid last time? Stupid. So, so I, I, I could be completely wrong about it, but I'm on the fence uh, about Clubhouse and I am sort of just putting a flag there and seeing what I can do on it. The problem with Clubhouse, I feel, is that as an introvert, right, I feel like it's not a good space for introverts to get involved in the conversation. And I feel like it's a very elitist thing because they're talkers and listeners. And I don't like this so much because even though you can raise your hands, like the idea of talking and not being able to type, that's why I like Twitch, that's why I like YouTube, that's why I like Facebook Live in a way because you mm. can type but I understand that all the hype is around Clubhouse and I'll be there. I gotta also stick my neck out and, and see what things are going on. Mm. My other thing about Clubhouse that I don't like is the exclusivity of it. I don't like that nothing is recorded. It's good for the pandemic because nobody is able to go to a bar and meet strangers and then just talk and then nothing is recorded. There's some sacredness in that. But I feel like if things go back to normal, then the, the sacredness is lost and Clubhouse will lead the people to something else. Like one of my friends made a great point about it. He said exclusivity, right? A lot of the times only works for the opening phase. So if you remember, right, Gmail when it started was very exclusive because you had to be invited to be able to get on it. And it had some amazing amount of space. So everybody wanted to get on it. But nowadays, everybody can get on Gmail. So I'm quite sure it will change. The valuation right now is very positive. So I don't want to look stupid by crapping on it too much. But I'm on the fence, lah. Yeah. I'll still be on it. What you said reminded me of what Guy Kawasaki told me because I interviewed him. And he said that now you're in the early adopter stage. But to make it mainstream, it needs to be the kind where my wife is joining Clubhouse to join the local knitting scene. And that's the way to plug into the local community. Yep. It has yep. to be yep. Yep. not marketers marketing to marketers. It has to yep. be part of normal life. Yeah, I think it's something that great. Marketers marketing to marketers. I, I hate going into a room and it's just talking about you know, so productivity and creativity and a workspace and I like to get in the groove. Like just talking about positive things all the time. The rooms that I have fun on on Clubhouse all have some degree of authenticity and negativity to it. I want to see conflict. I want to see negative things and people coming out and really being vulnerable. I just don't want to see you talking about how great you are at your job. And so I don't like LinkedIn on serious. I don't like that business more. Yeah. I feel like they need to be more than that. And I think we've tried some, not to say we're great at it, but some of the more entertaining always got some put or quite like or weird element yeah, yeah, that yeah, makes yeah. it a bit more yin and yang. You yeah, know? exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for this wide-ranging interview. Yeah, I normally end with these questions. So for the first one is this, do you feel like you have found your why? Well, I think for the next five years, yes. But the future is always changing, so the why might always change. Nah, same. And what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? This is the question you asked retirees. Yeah, yeah. Or like famous actors. I don't think we've done enough to answer this question. Yeah. Uh, Legacy, eh? What do you want? 15, 15 million for your kid? No, no, no. I feel, I feel like if Paul Sarimane dies in five years, if we can inspire other hundred people to start their own business or live by the principles that we, we live by, that would be not bad for me. For me, it's becoming the rich that put that of our generation. Basically helping to start a lot people's journeys and personal finance. What do you think are the most important qualities a successful person should have? Humility is like a big one. Humility probably prevents a lot of successful people from being even more successful. Because once you are unable to take criticism, then that's when your slow decline starts. Yeah, but of course, I'm not saying like, listen to everyone, listen to some people, but not everyone. Because clearly some opinions matter more than others. 
Yeah, mine would be similar. I like on the note of humility, I would do that more towards the interpersonal point of view where I would treat everyone the same. So if I'm kind of a snarky guy, I'm a bit like quite loud and I'm always a bit sarcastic. Mm. I will treat everybody like that. If I meet important people, I'm like that. Like, you know, people that I hire, I would be the same way. The fastest way I lose respect for somebody is to hear somebody talk to somebody that he or she deems lower yeah. and to hear that quick dismissal and that lack of basic respect, I hate that in people. Yeah. That's why I say you sarcastic also never mind. Just be like that to everybody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> why we say that as a counterpoint to being successful is that I think that is the biggest threat facing successful people because you have risen and become somebody influential that people listen to, you attain success. And hubris and pride is the most scary thing that is facing you. Like, you know, we talk a lot about rich people problems. I think the number one problem rich people have is uh, how to bring up your kids so they're not assholes. Uh. Yeah. And with successful people, that threat is so real. Yeah. Yeah. And where can people go to connect with you, support everything that you're doing? So we're on Facebook at... Facebook.com slash The Woke Salary Man, I yes, think. Yes. And then we're also on Instagram. You can find us at, at The Woke Salary Man. Yeah. We're also on Telegram. We are on a website called The Woke Salary Man.com. Yeah. The third is very important. And we are also TikTok. thinking about doing TikTok. And then we still might trying, also, still trying on TikTok. We might also so. do YouTube and podcast. So watch the space. There's a patron as well, right? Yes. It is, but we're thinking about stopping that because I think better for people to just save their money or invest it or something. Yeah. Because at the beginning point of time, it was very necessary yeah. and it helped a lot. But nowadays, I think actually we feel the love. People love us and we are very, very grateful. Yes. But uh, I think we don't need that. Or we just channel it towards a charity. I think the best way for people to support us down the line is to understand that we will do sponsored content first off. Yes. And also we've been giving money to charity and stuff to enact real campaigns like we sponsored some free sessions of free mental counseling. So we might want to mobilize in a way next time that requires people to either share or also match us. So if we give a certain amount, then they can contribute also. Then support us in those ways. And that was the end of episode 40. The show notes and transcript can be found at sothismywhy.com forward slash 40. And also a link to subscribe to this podcast weekly newsletter featuring all kinds of other inspiring and interesting things I found over the course of the week. And stay tuned for next Sunday because we'll be meeting an Asian-American journalist and news anchor for MSNBC and NBC News, who is the first Asian-American male to anchor a daily national cable news show, ranked by Medialist among the top 100 in news on its Power Grid Influence Index of TV anchors and hosts, and recognized by Business Insider as one of 21 dynamic careers to watch alongside Warren Buffett and Mark Cuban. Want to learn more? See you next Sunday.